Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Something about reading through those creeds, it's not just theology, it's, it's doxology. It, it produces worship in our hearts as we see that the gospel is not just one part, but is, is many parts of great news. So we remember that as we do that. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we'll continue our study through the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 7 this morning, looking at verses 14 through 24, if you want to turn there now. And we'll be continuing through John chapter 7. We looked at John 7, 1 through 14 last week, and we came to John chapter 7, seeing this pattern throughout John's Gospel, and especially in chapters 5 and 6, where there's a great festival that's taking place. In chapter 5, we don't know the festival, but we know that there is a feast going on. In John chapter 6, we see this great Passover feast is happening as Jesus performs this great miracle, feeds the multitudes, and does all the things that he does in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 7, we also see a feast, but this is the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. And we come to this great chapter that I feel is often neglected. Sometimes in our mind we might know about John chapter 6, John chapter 5, we can kind of place it in our heads. But John chapter 7, for me and I think for others, kind of gets, it gets slips through the cracks a little bit. It gets neglected. And I think that might be because there's no sign, there's no miracle in John chapter 7. There's no miraculous event there's no great multitudes being fed. There's no healing of a lame man as we saw in John chapter 5. None of that is recorded. And I think John's reason for doing that is to highlight the feast that is going on. And hopefully we saw that last week as we looked more in depth at the Feast of Tabernacles. That this great feast that was happening, this great celebration that was eight days long, was a celebration not only of what God had done in the past, but also looked forward to God's provision in the future, that it looked back on God's presence with his people in the wilderness, that he had led them through the desert, through the wilderness, and he had been present with them by the Spirit. He had tabernacled with them, and he had led them to the promised land. And this Feast of Tabernacles also looked forward to the great day because of this agricultural element. It was this day of ingathering where God would gather all his people together into the kingdom of God, this great ingathering of God's people. And so the festival was kind of interesting. As I said last week, they would build these physical booths made out of sticks and branches and beautiful flowing you know, leaves and flowers. They would build these booths and they would live in them for eight days, which is kind of odd to us, sort of like going camping and everybody getting together and partying almost like Woodstock or something. Well, not quite like Woodstock, but you know what I'm saying. And so they would build these big, these big booths, and they would, they would dwell there, and they would celebrate this feast of God's provision. And it was to remind them that even though they had not reached the heavenly promised land, God was present with them. And so we talked about that last week. And what's so ironic about what we saw last week in John chapter 7 with Jesus' brothers rejecting him, not even believing in him, the irony is the one who tabernacled with his people, Christ himself, who took on flesh, who dwelt with God's people, this great tabernacle was in their midst and they rejected it. They rejected the one who came to dwell with them. They not only rejected him, but they, they challenged him. 
They insulted him. They mocked him. They tried to get him to go to the feast to have this great big event where he would show his glory, show his miraculous works to the crowds. And Jesus says, no, my time has not yet come. And so we saw last week that just like Joseph in the Old Testament, Jesus' own brothers reject him and even hate him to the point of mocking and insulting him. And this week we will see this continue. We will see the crowds insult him, mock him. We will see them accuse him of having a demon, the son of glory having a demon. The religious leaders, the Jews of the day, will, in their hypocrisy and legalism, they will even want to kill Christ. But as we see this story unfold, as John chapter 7 unravels, we'll see that in the midst of all this persecution and tribulation, that the true glory of Christ is that even though his glory is veiled to them, they cannot see the glory of Christ, that for those who do see his glory, there is great hope this morning. That Jesus came to fulfill what was promised in the Old Testament, that he is the one that's come from God, the promised Messiah that's meant to lead his people to salvation, to springs of living water. He is the divine teacher, the incarnate word that's going to seek authority not from men, but from God. He's going to be the true prophet that does not seek his own glory, but the glory of God. And he's going to be the righteous judge that's not fooled by the outward appearances, the outward glory of the people but he is going to come and judge with righteous judgment. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and he began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? But Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you would draw near to us, that we, your people, need help this morning. We are weighed down by our own sin this morning. We are weighed down by the suffering that is present in this world and even in our own bodies. And we come this morning as broken jars of clay, 
And that is so that your glory and light might shine through the message that we proclaim. And so this morning we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, help us to see the glory of the gospel of Christ. And that as we see this morning this great contrast between those that seek the glory of man and Christ who came to seek the glory of God, we pray this morning that our hearts would be, our hearts would be opened and bear before you, that we would not seek to hide anything from you, that we would come before you this morning in repentance and faith, knowing that you are the one who has done it all, who has fulfilled all the scriptures. You are the one, the righteous judge who sees everything and yet has given us the glory of the gospel. And so this morning, we rest on your promises, we trust in your grace, we ask that you would be present with us this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we, we jump into John chapter 7, and it says that we're at the middle of the feast. So as I said, this is an eight-day-long festival. It began with a Sabbath day on the first day and a Sabbath day celebration on the eighth day. And we come to the middle of the feast. And as with all the feasts, as with all the three annual feasts in the in, uh, at the time in first century Judaism, there would be many people there. There would be hundreds of thousands, if not maybe even a million people would descend on the city of Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. Now we don't know what he taught about. We don't know if he's teaching on the scriptures, if he's teaching maybe on something similar he did to the Sermon on the Mount. But we know, as with all the other gospel accounts, that Jesus spoke as one with authority. That whether he expounded the scripture or went, went on to talk about the great kingdom of God, he spoke as one with authority. And we see in our text in verse 15 that the Jews are marveling at his teaching. And they're marveling because Jesus, as they say, has learning but he has never studied. What are they talking about here? Well, is there, are they saying Jesus had no, never opened a Bible and he just had divine knowledge kind of you know, implanted like Neo in the Matrix, right? He just kind of downloaded all this information? No. In that day, it was the general expectation that most men and most people would know something about the scriptures. But to be learned or to be formally educated was to be trained under a rabbi. So you would follow a rabbi. We, we see from the Apostle Paul, he trained under the Rabbi Gamaliel. And this was a common thing. And this is where people got their authority from. And so they were marveling because Jesus did not have such training. As we see in Luke's gospel, Jesus at 12 years old is in the temple asking them questions and talking about the things of God. And we see in our passage here that he at least knows the scriptures or is one who is speaking with authority. And as I said, it was common in that day for people to appeal to rabbis. They would appeal to people for their authority. And so if you had a question or there was a disagreement, you could kind of trump somebody with who you appealed to. And so there was this sort of trump card you could lay down. Well, well, I got this teaching from this person. Well, I got this teaching from this person. And what's so amazing is that Jesus did not appeal to any earthly rabbi. At no point in his ministry did he appeal to the earthly rabbis. In fact, he asserted unique authority. What do we see in Matthew chapter 5 and 6? He says, you have heard it said, 
but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is standing on what he says, not on what a rabbi says, not on what an earthly priest says, but on himself. Or he'll say places like, truly, truly, I say to you. This is Jesus asserting his unique authority. But at the same time, what we see in our passage today and throughout John's gospel is that Jesus is not some original teacher. He's not looking for some novel interpretation of the scriptures. He's not going around kind of winging it. What does he say in our passage? He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus is not appealing to rabbis. He's appealing to the Father. His authority does not come from man, from earthly priests, but from the triune God. This is a direct line of revelation. And so he's appealing to the Father. His authority is coming from God. And what we see in the incarnation is this Trinitarian work of God's revelation. And I'm getting this from Joel Beakey. He says that the Father is the author of divine revelation in the Son. As it'll say in other places like John chapter 8. As the Father has taught me, so I speak. And I speak just as the Father has commanded me. Secondly, we see that the Son is the mediator of divine revelation, right? He is the one in John 1 that has made the Father known. He has more literally translated, exegeted the Father. He is making the Father known. And this was true even in the Old Testament. This quote from Calvin really is something to think about. He says this, that after the fall, no knowledge of God has power unto salvation apart from the work of the mediator. After the fall, no knowledge of God has power unto salvation apart from the work of the mediator. So we see the Father is the author of revelation, the Son is the mediator of divine revelation, and we see in, in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is the effective agent of revelation. He is the one that enlightens the hearts of God's people. He gives them a new heart, as Ezekiel says. He renews their will. He gives them understanding to receive the word of God. And so while these are different things that the, the scriptures attribute to the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we believe in the inseparable operations of the triune God, that this is God working in Father, Son, and Spirit to reveal himself to his people. And that's what we see continued in Jesus' thought in verse 17. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus is asserting himself as the divine teacher, the one that has come from God, that speaks for God, and as we see here is the spirit that works in believers to renew their will. This work of grace in their hearts by the Spirit is how they will know that this teaching of Christ is from God. Or as it says in our confession, and as some of us guys talked about this week, it is the inward work of the Spirit bearing witness to the Word in our hearts. That we need even to believe the Word, to believe Jesus' teaching as coming from God, we need the work of the Spirit in our very hearts to do this. And so we see in verses 14 through 17 that Jesus is the divine teacher sent from God who has been taught by God who is himself 
God. And so we move into our second point this morning in verses 18 through 20. We see Jesus as the true prophet. Jesus as the true prophet. That in verse 18, Jesus sets up this great contrast. He's contrasting the false teaching of false prophets and himself as the true teacher, the true prophet. And what does he say in verse 18? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. This is what a false prophet does. This is what a false teacher does. They, they stand on their own authority because I say so. They stand on what they say, not on the word of God. And they seek their own glory. It may appear that they are after the glory of God, but a false prophet seeks his own glory. And Jesus contrasts this with what a true prophet does, is a true prophet speaks with the authority of God's word and seeks the glory of God. And what's interesting, if you wanted to turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18, we see the same contrast in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18, where Jesus, where, sorry, not Jesus, where God, through Moses, is, is laying down what the people should do. And in Deuteronomy 18, we see this same contrast between false prophets and true prophets, where God says that the false prophets will come in and they will presume to speak for God. They will say, I speak for God when God did not command them to speak. They add to the doctrines and commandments of God. And this is contrasted with the true prophets that speak the word of God as they're commanded. And what's interesting about Deuteronomy 18, if you turn there, verses 15 through 22, is we see that God promises that he will send another prophet, a true greater prophet, even than Moses. That this prophet would be different than the other prophets. That it says in verse 18, I will raise up from you a prophet like you from among your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Interesting, that sounds a lot like what Jesus said. That I speak as the Father commanded. That a true prophet, and in this case the true prophet, would speak for God. He would have the word of God placed in his mouth, and he would speak the word of God. And it says in verse 15 that the people are to listen to him. They're to listen to this true prophet that's going to be greater than Moses. And we know throughout many places in the New Testament that this true prophet is none other than Christ himself. He is the one who comes out of the waters of baptism. What does the Father speak to, the, to Christ as he comes out of the water? He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The exact words of Deuteronomy 18. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the one who was taught from God, whose teaching is from God, because he himself is God. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 1? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Christ, the true prophet. And what's amazing about Deuteronomy 18, if you look there further, the false prophets, because they did not speak for God, were to be put to death. They were to be executed. 
because they were liars. They did not, they were not commanded by God to speak and they were to be put to death. And the true prophet was to be listened to, was to be exalted, was to be looked to. So the false prophets were to be killed. The true prophet was to be exalted. And what do we see flipped in our text this morning? What do we see in the following verses? Christ standing before the people in first century Israel. And instead of exalting the true prophet, they are seeking to execute him. Instead of listening to Christ, the one that has come from God, they are seeking to kill him. They have chosen man's word over God's. They have chosen the doctrine and commandments of men over the word and the law of God. And even though Jesus points out their sin and their error, they only accuse him, mock him, and seek to kill him. The roles are flipped. The true prophet is supposed to be exalted. They're seeking to kill him. The false prophets are supposed to be done away with, and here they are being exalted as the leaders of the day. And so we see in this passage that, that the hearts of these people are revealed. The hearts of these people are revealed. They're not trying to seek after truth. They're not open to this true prophet. Rather, their hearts are full of hypocrisy and legalism, and they are seeking to kill Jesus. And so we've seen Christ as the divine teacher. We've seen Christ as the true prophet. And finally, we'll look at Christ as the righteous judge in verses 21 through 24. So Jesus points out their hypocrisy. He says, has any of you kept the law of Moses? Why do you seek to kill me? And they tell him, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They're, they're lying to his face. They're, they're saying, we don't want to kill you, Jesus, while murder lies in their very hearts. And so we see at the end here that Jesus tells them to judge, not by appearance, but with righteous judgment. And this is a reference to, maybe you remember, all the way back in John chapter 5, what happened in John 5. Jesus had healed a man that had been lame for 38 years. Instantly, he healed him. But the problem for the Jewish people was that this happened on the Sabbath day, the day where the people were to worst, they, they, sorry, they were to rest, they were to cease from work, and they were to obey the law of God, which said to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so to the people, it appeared that Jesus had violated the law of God by doing this seeming work on the Sabbath, namely healing this man. But as we see pointed out in this passage, it is them that had perverted the law of God and perverted the intention of the law with their legalism. That this is what legalism does. It perverts the law. It turns the law into a method of salvation, a method of gaining righteousness before God when it cannot do that. And we reread in Romans 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law. And so isn't it loving that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath? Not to the religious leaders. The legalism of the religious leaders, while it might have looked like a desire to obey the law of God was void of love and care for the man. 
They did not care for him. They did not truly love him. They just wanted external, outward obedience. They had separated the law of God from the character of God. That's from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, legalism at its core separates the law of God from the character of God. And the truth is, in the Old Testament, there was always provision for acts of mercy and acts of necessity on the Sabbath day. This was not against the law of God for Jesus to heal a man. And yet, in their legalism, their additions to God's law, they deemed Jesus' action of healing a man to be a violation of the law of God. And this is what legalism does. Legalism cannot judge rightly. Legalism does not begin with right judgment. It begins with appearances. Well, what looks good on the outside? Well, what looks right? That's what, it's all about appearances. It all, it's all about what appears holy. What's external, what's exterior, what's, what's glorious on the outside? But we know from the rest of the scriptures that legalism only lowers the law of God. It makes it a bar that that man can jump over, not something that God has to earn for us. And it raises men to this place where they can attain perfection. They can attain righteousness before God. And ultimately, legalism, as we've seen in our passage, creates hypocrites. Hypocrisy. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, whitewashed tombs that are nice and white on the outside, but inwardly they are full of dead men's bones. And just to make this explicit, notice the blindness and the hypocrisy of the people in this passage. They have judged the perfect Son of God, the one that has come to be the Word incarnate. They have said, you're a vile sinner the innocent one they've accused of sin. They've accused the one that cast out demons of himself having a demon. They put the Lord of glory on trial for healing a man while their hearts are full of murder. The hypocrisy. That's what hypocrisy does. It looks at the speck in another's eye while there's a plank in our own. And how often are you and I prone to do this? And yet, what's amazing about this passage and what we need to focus on and see this morning is the patience and the long-suffering of Christ. The patience and the long-suffering of Christ. They've just accused the Son of Glory of having a demon. They're trying to kill him. And notice his patience and his long-suffering. These people, these religious leaders, deserved judgment. (laughs) They deserve to be judged. And Jesus, he doesn't just walk away. He he confronts them, but he does it lovingly and graciously. And far from removing the law in this scenario, Jesus uses the law to show them the true meaning of the law that they had forgotten about. And he does it also to show them the hypocrisy of their own hearts. As we've said, and, and you can see in verses 22 and 23, that works of mercy... And works of necessity were always allowed on the Sabbath day, right? Jesus uses the example of circumcision. That circumcision was to occur on the male child on the eighth day, even if that fell on the Sabbath day. That was a work of necessity. Jesus in Matthew 12 talks about um, his disciples are going through the fields and they pluck heads of grain 
That's a work of necessity. You need to eat on the Sabbath. You need to prepare food on the Sabbath. And yet the legalism of the Pharisees is blind to this. And yet Jesus healing the man is even greater than all these things. He made a whole man's body well, and yet they want to kill him. And so the only law that Jesus violated in doing this is their man-made legalistic laws. He violated no law of God. And so Jesus shows them this using the law of God. <laughs> he goes to the Old Testament and proves them wrong. And secondly, he shows in this passage, he reveals their hypocrisy. That they too, they accuse him of breaking the law while they do similar things. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. They've perverted the law. They're partial to their laws while ignoring God's true unchanging law. And so as he says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And what's interesting, if you go back just a couple verses before where we went in Deuteronomy 18, if you go to Deuteronomy 16, and this is also interesting, I don't know why, but in Deuteronomy 16, Moses has just talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, and afterwards he talks about the institution of judges in the people of Israel. Just interesting that we're in the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus is talking about right judgment. And in Deuteronomy 16, God tells the people of Israel that they're to appoint righteous judges. It's the same language as what we see here, that they're to appoint right judges. They're not to pervert justice. They're not to show partiality. They're not to take bribes. They're to judge with righteous judgment. And yet the history of Israel shows that they did not have right judgment. They did not judge with just judgment. They perverted judgment. That's what the prophets do. They show and expose the injustice of the people of God, that they had taken bribes. They perverted God's law. They had shown partiality, and they had added to God's law. But if you stay in the prophets and you go to Isaiah chapter 11, there's this promise, there's this looking forward to this day where one will come from the root of Jesse, the stump of David, and that will not judge by what he sees or by what he hears, but he will judge with righteous judgment. This is Isaiah, 500 years before Christ. He is promising this one that will come and judge with righteous judgment. And as we've said with all the other parts of this passage, this is fulfilled in Christ. He is the righteous judge. He's the one that's not swayed by outward appearance, by external outward glory. He sees the matter of the heart. He judges with right judgment. And he's able to do this because he is the righteous one. As he said in verse 17, there is no falsehood in him, no unrighteousness. There's no unrighteousness in this one. And if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, it's this amazing passage where Peter is reflecting on the life of Jesus as he was persecuted, as he was reviled. And it says there was no sin in him, neither was there iniquity. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That Jesus showed patience with these people. He shows patience with us. 
in our sin, he long suffers with us. That when he was reviled, when he was mocked, when he was said he had a demon, when people sought to kill him, he did not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but was patient and long suffering with them. And as we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter reflects on the righteousness of Christ and he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That this is why Christ came. He came to save sinners. He came to save these very people that are mocking him. You and I who mock him in our sin and in our rejection of God. And you and I are no different than these crowds, right? The Lord of glory tabernacled among them. They wanted to kill him. And how often do you and I accuse Jesus of wrong? There must be something wrong with Jesus, right? I mean, we pick and choose what we want to believe about God and say, well, this part is okay, but this part about God, I don't like that part. And what we're doing is we're saying there's something wrong with Jesus and his teaching. And it's only because in our hearts is, is evil. <laughs> what did Jesus say last week? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That when Jesus brings light to dark places, he exposes the evilness of our very souls. He lays us bare. And our only hope this morning is in him, is in the righteous one. It's only found in Christ, the only righteous one. Because the truth is, if you and I this morning are to be judged with right judgment, we're in big trouble. We're lost. It sounds great. We want God to judge with right judgment. Justice flow down like a river. And we are unrighteous. What does it say in Romans 3? None is righteous. No, not one. And so if right judgment is going to come out, it's going to fall on us. And what does Romans 3 go on to say? The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from works of the law, but has been revealed in the righteousness that comes by faith, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And so this morning, as we step away from this passage and we see the glory of Christ as the divine teacher, as the true prophet, as the righteous judge, we see the glory of what Christ came to do. He came to bring the word of God and the people of God. That's why we have the scriptures that we have. He is the divine mediator, the only one, the word of God incarnate that brings the full revelation of God's gospel and promises, whose authority is not from any man, not from any earthly rabbi, but from God himself. He came as the true prophet, the one who speaks forth God's word, who does not seek his own glory. He's not looking to raise his own kingdom, but is concerned with the glory of God. And finally, we see Christ as the righteous judge who shows no partiality, but has come to judge with right judgment. And so as we think about these things, as we contemplate them, we, we think about our response to this message to this account in John chapter 7. And the first response is, if you do not know Christ, if you do not know him, if you have not been found in him, then this passage might be very sobering. That Jesus is not fooled by appearances. We can't put a veil over his eyes. We can't 
trick him with our external outward piety. We can fool other people. We cannot fool the Lord of glory. He is the judge of all the earth. He knows everything that we've ever done. We cannot hide from him. We cannot put our sin in in a basket or sweep it under the rug. We cannot hide from him. And this, this hiding of our sin, like Adam and Eve did, it reveals that we know what we're doing is wrong. We don't hide things that we know are right, right? We hide what we know is wrong. We hide, we've, we try to keep our sin from God, and it's all folly. And we're given a picture of this folly on the day of judgment. In the book of Revelation, we see that on the last day, unbelievers will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them and to hide them. And they cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? And the answer is no one. No one can stand. No one can stand before the just judgment of a holy God. But in chapter 7, in the next chapter, we're see, we see the picture of those that are able to stand and those that have been washed, their robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. And so this morning, the goal is to not try to clean ourselves up, to try to make ourselves look better, to wash the outside of the tomb. We can't. We can't clean ourselves up before we come to God. We can't make ourselves better. What does Jesus say at the end of this chapter in verses 37 and 38? He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says, come to me. I will make you clean. I will wash you. I will forgive your sin. I will forgive your iniquity. And there's a great hymn, hymn 75 in our hymnal, that is called, Come Ye Sinners. And it, and it says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. And then this amazing third verse, it says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. You cannot clean yourself up before you come to the throne. You cannot make yourself holy. But the only fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. If you do not know you're thirsty, you don't need water. But he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. And so this morning, it's not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. Run to Christ if you do not know him. Run to him. Don't try to clean yourself up first. Come to him. He will take your burdens. He will judge with right judgment. 
And if you're a believer this morning, if you do know Christ, if you are found in him, then in one sense, our response is no different. (laughs) We sin too. We have iniquity. We have trials and tribulations. And we come this morning looking to the one who judges justly. What does it say in 1 John? If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It is just of God to cleanse his people because they have trusted in Christ. And this morning we're reminded that even in our suffering, even in our trials and tribulations, that just as Jesus was persecuted, this morning we are to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Will not the God of all do what is right? Will he not judge rightly? That is our hope this morning. So we look to Christ, we look to his glory, and we look to the final day where we will be hid in the rock of ages. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you, and we we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have given us your word, you've given us your divine revelation. Father, Son, and Spirit have made it known to us. And this morning, we, we, we rely on the triune God to save us. There is no hope outside of that. We need you not only to teach us, not only to bring forth your word, but to judge rightly. And as there is so much injustice in our, in our world, even in our own hearts, Lord, we trust and rely on you, that you will do what is just. And we see in the cross where your justice and mercy meet. It's the only way that we can have peace with God this morning is through Christ, through the blood of the Lamb. And so we rest on that, we trust in that, and this morning may we look to you and remember your faithfulness to us, that you will not forget your promises or forsake your covenant. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.